At this time, the sprouts can be dismissed, children kindergarten uh, and younger. And let's give our sprout workers a round of applause as they serve their, our children this morning. And we have a, uh, a gift uh, for us uh, this morning, and that is Dustin. Uh, we are beginning a new series called By Faith Advent. Uh, quick synopsis, Advent is a season of waiting expectantly for something big to happen. And so we are looking at some Old Testament uh, examples out of the book of Hebrews of those who waited by faith for something big to happen, all of which culminates in Christ. And so Dustin is kicking off our series this morning. Dustin is the uh, pastoral associate, assistant, assistant to the associate, associate to the director um, at Redeemer City Church, and he's a seminary student at Faith Theological Seminary and a good friend of the garden. Let's welcome Dustin. No? People in the back are kind of looking at me weird. Good? All right. Thank you, Brandon. <coughs> Last week I uh, preached, and I asked a question to the audience waiting for them to respond. It was just like, you know, can everybody hear me? And everybody just looked at me. <laughs> and I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to keep preaching, and we'll, we'll go from there. Uh, we're going to be uh, examining Hebrews 11 today. You want to turn to Hebrews 11? Verses 8 through 19. All right. Let's open up in prayer. Abba, Father. Good, awesome, and holy. Lord, we thank you for the Garden Church, that they are proclaiming the gospel throughout Baltimore, that they are seeing young men and women, old men and women, come to Christ. Lord, we praise you that it is your gospel that is saving the lives of sinners. Lord, we praise you for Christmas, for this time, this season, where we can reflect beauty, where we can reflect on your goodness, that you came to us to save us from our sins. Lord, I uh, know that when your word goes out, it never returns void. So Lord, I pray that this sermon today, that the word spoken, that the gospel may be heard, and that people may have their hearts awakened to your love and beauty. And Lord, I pray that this sermon may be pleasing to you. So Lord, we, uh, we come to you. We come to this throne of grace wanting to see your beauty, see your goodness. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. Why do we like stories so much? Constantly, time and time again, we'll watch the same movies and read the same stories over and over. I don't know how many times I've seen The Dark Knight. I think I've seen that at least a hundred times. But it's not because I forgot what the movie was about. It's because I really enjoyed 
the movies. I really enjoyed Batman kicking some butt. <laughs> but I really enjoyed the themes that we find throughout movies. Yesterday, uh, Lily and I went on a daddy-daughter date. If you guys don't know who Lily is, Lily is my stepdaughter. We went on a daddy-daughter date to the movies where we saw Frozen, the new Disney movie. It's really good. Uh, and it's hard for a manly man like me to say a <laughs> Disney movie's good. Anyway, so we, uh, we went to go see the movie, and Frozen is the story of two princesses who are sisters. One has these magnificent powers where she can manipulate and create ice. And what happens is she can't control her powers. So she brings, she tries to hide her powers from the kingdom and from her family. And as she gets older, an accident happens where her powers just unleash. And she runs away from the kingdom. And what happens is when she unleashes the power, she puts the entire kingdom in danger. So her younger sister decides, I'm going to go on a journey. I'm going to rescue my sister and I'm going to bring her back to the kingdom to restore and make all things new. And at the end of the movie, as we, uh, as we left, I couldn't help but think, like, wow, I can't wait to see that again. Like, five months from now, Easter's going to come. I'm going to spend the 20 bucks and buy that for Lily, but secretly buy that for myself. <laughs> but what was interesting is what made me say that? What about that movie made me want to watch it again? And I thought, well, maybe it's because it's a story about courage. Or maybe it was because it was a story about love, how love always triumphs over evil. Or maybe it was the redemption aspects that I saw in Frozen that reminded me of the gospel. But as I thought about it, I thought there was something deeper, that throughout the acts of the story, throughout the acts of the movie, there was one underlying consistent theme, and that was hope. Hope for love, hope for restoration, hope that all things would work out for the good of the characters. So I bet some of you are wondering, how does this relate to the letter of Hebrews? The letter of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who were facing utmost persecution. They were watching their brothers and sisters in Christ being slaughtered. Can you imagine being a Christian in the first century and watching your brothers and sisters being slaughtered for their faith? It has to make you wonder, when is the king going to return? When is Jesus going to come back and save us? Where is our hope? I think the writers of Hebrew, they didn't, and as I, as I read the scriptures, what I realize more and more, Paul and Timothy, the writer of Hebrews, Peter, they don't just write the letters of the New Testament to just give us doctrine. No, it was to provide comfort to those reading it during that time frame. Hebrews was written to bring comfort to the Christians of the first century, but not just comfort, hope. And what was surprising is, is we find in the beginning of Hebrews, the writer shows the supremacy of Christ, how he is above all things. We also see that Jesus is our great high priest. He's our true mediator, the one who stands between God and man. But it's interesting, because you think that would be enough to bring comfort and hope to the Christians. 
But the writer points and starts telling stories. He points to the Old Testament. He says, look at Abraham. Look at Noah. Look at Moses. And I bet you it wasn't the first time they heard these stories. They've heard these stories time and time again. They had festivals created around these stories so that the Israelites would remember how God was grateful, how God persevered them, God saved them, delivered them, time and time again. And I think he told these stories because he wanted to show the new Christians what the Old Testament saints had. How did they persevere? And I think the answer is faith. But not just faith, hope. Which leads me to truth number one. I have three truths, all right? So truth number one is faith can't exist without hope. And hope cannot exist without faith. Now some of you are wondering probably what is faith and what is hope? These are abstract terms right off the cuff. But we need to go to the scriptures to see what the scriptures define faith and hope as to give some meat to those words. And so I want to say that biblical faith is not some kind of wishful thinking. Biblical faith is a solid confidence that God is God, that God is faithful, that God will fulfill all the promises he's made according to his plan. Biblical faith is not some random uncertainty but a complete trust and hope, knowing that God is the God who has promised to never leave or nor forsake us. Here's the thing. You wouldn't put your trust in something that you know wouldn't work. You wouldn't put your trust or you wouldn't give your life to someone you were uncertain would save you. My friends, a faith that says, I kind of believe that Jesus will save me? It's a 50-50 shot, though. That's not faith. That's just wishful thinking. Biblical faith says, I put my trust in Jesus because I know on the cross he died for my sins. Biblical faith says, I know on the cross he defeated all evil. And I know that his resurrection was for me that he's the true king of life who will bring about complete restoration to everything. That, my friends, is not only faith, but hope. When you put your faith in someone like Jesus, you know he's going to bring you all the way through. You know you can actually hope because time and time again in the Old Testament, we saw God deliver the Israelites. We saw God deliver time and time again, being merciful and gracious to rebels. But he always brought them back. He always pursued after them. How does hope and faith play out in the Christian life? And I believe the answer to this question can be found by looking at the life of Abraham who lived by faith in future hope. So truth number two, 
I want to show you three things that Abraham did by faith. Truth number two, by faith, Abraham obeyed God, he lived for God, and he waited for God. By faith, number one, Abraham obeyed God. Look at verse eight. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now we all know, right off the bat, if you guys read your Bibles, which I hope you do, right? Everybody raise your hand if you don't read your Bible. I almost got you there. Uh, If you read your Bible, you realize that uh, when it says, by faith, Abraham obeyed, it's interesting because if you think back to Abraham's story, you're like, eh, did he obey? I mean, I'm pretty sure he uh, tried to play off his wife to the Egyptians to get some goods. I don't know if that's uh, faith. I don't know if that's complete trust in a God, right? It doesn't sound like faith. But what we see time and time again is the God who promised Abraham, I'm going to bring you out of your land. I'm going to give you a new land. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. What we see time and time again is when Abraham screws up, God rescues him. God pursues him. God calls him back. And what we see throughout Abraham's life is that when God pursues him, when God calls him, when God goes after him, Abraham grows. His character grows. His obedience grows. Do you see the foundation here? Abraham wasn't just this completely righteous guy. He wasn't righteous right off the bat. It was by God's love that Abraham grew. It was by God's love that Abraham was able to obey. Some of you today are struggling. You have failed to obey God once again. Some of you woke up this morning after sinning all last night. And you're wondering to yourself, God doesn't love me. There's no way God could love someone like me. My brothers and sisters, may this be a comfort to you that not even Abraham obeyed God perfectly. But that didn't stop God from pursuing his children. God is pursuing you. I've seen that in my own life. Three years ago, I fell into deep sin. And I woke up that morning thinking, I am such a horrible sinner. There's no way God loves me. What can I do? And I remember I was driving to Baltimore, and I was tears flooding down streaming down my face. Just an agony over how could I disobey, how could I spit in the face of God? How could he love me? And I parked the car and it started snowing. And that verse came to my mind. You all know the verse, right? Can I get some of you to say it? Anybody? Laura, what is it? Yes. 
And when I, and I, <laughs> when I, was, uh, I was walking down the street remembering that verse, and comes around the corner is Joel. This was, this was right when I met Joel. I, thought, I still think I thought Joel was part of a cult. And uh, Joel came around the corner, and I confessed, and I was like, Joel, like, I'm bleeding. <laughs> like, I'm, you know, I'm dying here. And that's how I knew that God loved me, because God used Joel to speak into my life. He said, you're forgiven. That's the whole point of the cross. And he sat there in the snow. I think he was wearing what he was, this little tiny jacket now, you know? <laughs> This man freezing to death, and all he wants to do is get to Starbucks. But he took the time to pray with me on that snowy street corner to share God's love with me. My friends, God loves you. He is pursuing after you. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sins. Flee to God this morning. Realize that your weak faith is not what saves you. It's not how much faith you can conjure up. It's the object of your faith. It's Jesus. Tim Keller says, It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. It's not how strong you are. It's how strong Jesus is. Second thing is that Abraham lived for God. Look at verse 9 to 16. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is beautiful. The splendor of Christ. It's interesting that when I say Abraham lived a life of God, we just talked about how it didn't always seem like that. What's even more interesting is in the passage, it said, by faith, Sarah. Wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. If you've read your Bibles go back to the Sarah story, you know Sarah didn't believe God. She laughed at God. What's even more beautiful is that they lived by grace in God's mercy. Because what we see right here is that God doesn't bring up their past sins. 
the writer of Hebrews could have been, by faith Abraham did, but he didn't really do it that well. By faith Sarah did, but yeah, she wasn't that great either. No. It was by faith Abraham did this. By faith Sarah did this. God didn't count their sins against them. How beautiful is that? Is that not the foundation of the Christian life? Of living for God? That your sins have been cleansed? That you've been washed by the blood? What's even more interesting is that they were called out of their homeland to be foreigners, to be exiles in a new world. He called Abraham's wife, Sarah, to start a new nation. And yet God puts them in tents. And here's the thing. What, what always, what was the hardest thing about reading this passage was the verse that uh, these all died in faith, not having received things promised. Wait a second. Did God not give them, did not God not promise them stuff and then bring them to it? And that always, ugh, I don't like that verse, you know? Because <laughs> it makes you have to think, like, wait a second. But what we see is that they saw a glimpse of what was to come. They might not have seen the promise fulfilled in their lifetime, but they saw a glimpse of what was to come. But it was their hope in the things to come that gave them the faith to live out in a land that was foreign to them, to be a people set apart for God. This is the Christian life. God has called you to live your life for him. When Christ saved you, he called you to be a foreigner and an exile. Turn with me to 1 Peter 1.17. 1 Peter 1.17 says, Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And again in 1 Peter chapter 2.11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. God calls Christians to live as foreigners in this land with reverent fear to God and to live lives set apart for God and from sin. But he doesn't just call you to this without a reason. He doesn't call you to be a foreigner in this world without getting your citizenship somewhere else. has given you your citizenship somewhere else. Ephesians 2.19 says, you are no longer foreigners, but citizens with God's people and a member of his household. Philippians 3.20 says, and he reiterates the same message, and saying, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for our Savior from there. Do you see what Christ has done? pointing you to something much better. Oftentimes as Christians, we want to get caught up in the comforts of this world. We just want to be, we want to be cool and hip with everybody else, you know? Christianity is not cool. You know? 
Jesus has called you to be set apart. In fact, to go against the world. He's called you to live life separate. Does your life look different than your neighbor's life? If somebody was to walk into your work or into your marriage, were they able to look into your life and be like, yes, that man has his foundation in Christ. Or that woman has a heart that's so deep for Christ that I can see it when she loves others. Can you say that about your life today? Jesus promised us something better, that there is a better country, one where he is the builder and the one who will bring you to this new country, this new city, and this new home. The last thing Abraham did by faith was wait. He waited for his God. Advent is the time of preparing, of waiting. It's to prepare our hearts for Christmas. Can you imagine being Old Testament saints, wondering when your king was going to come? I was doing some research for some papers that I'm writing for seminary, and it was interesting to see that after the exile between 500 B.C. to about Jesus' time, the Israelites were under captivity by four of the world's greatest empires. Persia, uh, Greek, Rome, I'm now blanking on the last one. Oh my gosh, Assyria, thank you. <laughs> you could come teach my history class on Monday. Syria, oh, I'm sorry, five. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greek, and Rome. So there's five. I need to now go tell my kids that there's going to be a change on their test. <laughs> but anyway, to, th to think about, in those 500 years, the Israelites were under captivity by five of the greatest empires this world has ever seen. And they weren't always the friendliest empires. One of the Greek emperors did not care for the Jews at all. He desecrated the temple. He made them eat foods that they were not allowed to eat. He destroyed their customs. Can you imagine being an Israelite in that time period and wondering, here's this pagan emperor who's put his throne in God's temple. And where is God? Why is he not going to rescue us? It leaves you without hope. But the Old Testament saints were pretty good at something. I think they were better at this than we are. We live in a fast-paced, I need it now. They were good at waiting. You're probably thinking, wait, how does this show that Abraham waited? Where do we see this in this passage? Look at verse 17 and 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had perceived the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham, by faith, was called to offer up his one and only son of the promise as a sacrifice, even though God had promised Abraham that it would be through Isaac that his line would flourish. 
Can you imagine being Abraham? Slowly walk. God has called you to sacrifice your son. And what's amazing is like, oh, that's terrible. You know, I hear a lot, that's a, a lot of skeptics give that kind of straw man argument of like, how could God ever call someone to sacrifice their own son? That's why Christianity is a bloody religion. What was interesting is that we never see Abraham have a qualm with God's command. And that's because the ancient people knew, and this was not just in the Israelite religion, this was throughout all religions, that the first son was always to be the acceptable sacrifice. It was your first son that you gave up. So here Abraham, God's called Abraham to sacrifice his own son. The one son that through the promise, his line would flourish. Can you imagine being him, walking up this mountain, waiting patiently for God to deliver them? Waiting patiently for God to come. All right, God, like you promised me this, but when are you going to deliver? And this is what I meant earlier when I said it was by God's pursuing that Abraham grows, that Abraham had obedience. See, I think in chapter 12, when Abraham gets first called out, if God was to ask him this, he would have failed. But we see by chapter 22, I think, or 21, that when Abraham, when God calls Abraham to obedience, Abraham follows. So let's go back to the image. Abraham walking up the mountain slowly. He knew what God was going to do. He knew that God was going to do something. That God wasn't going to just kill Isaac, but that Isaac would return with him. So Abraham waited, waiting to see what God was going to do, waiting to see how God was going to keep his promises. We too, like Abraham, are waiting. We are waiting for God to come rescue us. This is the beauty of Advent, that we can now prepare our hearts for what the Christian life is. It's waiting for our King to return. And this leads me to my third and final point. Truth number three. Jesus came to show us that our waiting is worth it. What do I mean? As Abraham got to the top of the mountain and prepared to slay his one and only son as a sacrifice, God stopped him and instead provided a ram instead of Isaac. God provided the sacrifice that day. And when God did that, I believe Abraham saw something much deeper in that act. It's interesting. In the Gospel of John, John chapter 8, 56, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he did and was glad. How did Abraham see Jesus' day? And I believe it was in this act. When God came and provided the sacrifice, it must have hit Abraham like, that's it. That's how God is going to save me. That's how God is going to save my family from their sins. He's going to provide the sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. This is the splendor of Christmas. For Jesus came to this world and lived a life of obedience to God that we nor Abraham could never live completely or perfectly. 
he lived a life fully and truly for God that you or I could ever dream of living. And he was able to do this because he had hope. That's weird to say Jesus had hope. Well, yes. Jesus had hope. Jesus had hope because hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is knowing that the promises are going to be fulfilled. And Jesus knew that even though he was going to suffer immensely, that he was going to take on the sins of God's children, that God would raise him, and that his death and resurrection would ultimately destroy evil. And not just evil, but it would be take on the wrath of God so that your sins would be paid for. And it's not just that. It doesn't just end there. It was the hope that one day he will return and bring his new family, his children home to the city without, or just to the city with the foundation that God has built, to a heavenly country. Jesus came to show us that wait, our waiting is worth it. Because even though we are not yet home, even though we are living as strangers and exiles in a world of evil, suffering, and persecution, God has promised a new home. God promised Abraham he would come, and he did. And he has promised to, to us that one day he will return once again. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because God promised the Old Testament saints that he would come, and he did. And if he came once and fulfilled that promise, why would he not come back again? What greater promise is there than that? That Jesus is coming and will return to bring us home. If this is our hope, if this is where we have put our faith in, in Jesus, then we know that waiting will just be a glimpse of our life. A small glimpse. A short page away from, as C.S. Lewis says, in the last battle. The beginning. Chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I like reading the same stories over and over again. I like the movie Frozen, and I can't wait to see it again. But there is a greater story that I cannot wait to be a part of, that I'm already a part of, and that one day that story is never going to end. I'm never going to have to rewatch it because it never ended. That's the story that you all should long for. Long for it with me. For Christ to return. Let's pray. Abba Father, you are so good, so awesome, and so holy. Lord, we praise you that it was your pursuing call, that it was your mighty grace that brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. It was your mighty power that saved us from our sins, that called us out of this world of sinful pleasure into a new land where you will give us a new home. Jesus, we thank you for taking on our sins, for dying the death that we deserve, for living the life we should have lived. Jesus, Help us to live by grace. Help us to see your beauty and splendor more today and more throughout this month as we prepare for Christmas. 
Holy Spirit, we pray that you give us comfort, that you teach us these things, that you help us meditate on these truths, that a life with you is the greatest life we could ever have, and that one day you will bring us home. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. Amen.